How about now? Okay. Uh, the book of Romans really has two sections. First section is chapter 1 through 11. That really is Paul giving God's plan, his understanding of salvation to Israel and to the nations. And we've gone through that. That's quite a theological section of the book. The second section is more practical, and I think Paul is addressing it primarily to the Gentile believers in Rome. Uh, And he is following through with what he talked about in the first section, that there is this righteousness of faith, a righteousness of faith that goes back to Abraham, that believes what God has said, and that God will do what he's promised. And that is counted as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. But there's another piece that Paul talks about in Romans, and it seems to be that he's anticipating that we're not quite going to get it. Uh, He may be, in some sense, anticipating some of the reformers who said, well, then it's just about faith. And Paul says, no, we're not getting rid of the Torah. We're establishing the Torah. We're not getting rid of doing right. We don't sin that grace may abound. God forbid that. We really need to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Ultimately, he tells us that our process of faith, this struggle that we're in, is going to bring about character and bring about maturity as we work towards what Paul calls the glorification and the resurrection of the body and the adoption as sons. All deep, deep theological stuff. So I believe that chapters 12 and 15, through 15 fit together just like the first 11 chapters. And I'd like to be able to do them all together. I'm doing them in sequence, but I... I really wish that I could cover all of it in one, in one time. So I hope that you'll be reading chapters 12 through 15 as we go through these last several chapters. Uh, last week I wanted to do chapter 13 as a tale of chapter 12 because 12 and 13, 14 and 15 are very much connected together. But 12 is too long and there was too much to cover. So I'm going to try to revisit that today and add the 13th chapter to it. And then next time we'll look at the 14th. And I can't get to the 15th, but I'll, I'll try to pull those together as, as we do that. So today I'm going to end last week's sermon by looking at chapter 12 quickly and then looking at, uh, at it as the context for chapter 13. Romans 12 begins with Paul having concluded his theological statement. He says to us, Therefore, brethren, I beg you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's fascinating that Paul uses body there because he's going back and Uh, in the context of the first 11 chapters, talking about a struggle that we have. We've been born again in our spirit. Our mind is 
is in need of transformation so that we're thinking in spiritual terms and not in worldly terms. In spiritual terms and not in fleshly terms. And so he's really arguing uh, about what he's been talking about in chapter 7 where he says, I can't do what I want to do. There's a problem. The problem in me is... This law of sin and death. Not the Torah. The Torah is holy and good. But the law of sin and death is in my flesh. And I need to be released from this. That will happen at death. And then will ultimately happen in the resurrection. So this struggle, Paul says, is something that we have to address daily. And he describes it in Ephesians and Colossians as we looked at and Galatians as well, in this idea of taking off the old man, taking off the, the, the old life, being transformed in the spirit of our mind, and putting on the new life which is fashioned after Christ. And what Paul says in Galatians when he talks about this, is if you set your mind on the following the spirit, You will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. In other words, there's a direction for us to go, and our direction is a spiritual direction, a direction towards eternal things, a direction towards uh, those things that are uh, above, Paul says in one of the other texts. So, this taking off the old self and changing our mind is not a one-time deal. It's a It's a daily thing. Paul talks about dying daily to self. Um, And we do this now, he says, by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices. And by avoiding the conformance to the pressure of the culture around us. Instead of acting like the world, we're to act like the kingdom. We're to act in a different way. And when we do that, when we present ourselves to God, and of course we do that in each of our services, and most liturgies do that, this time of presenting ourselves before the Lord, it's a reminder each day that we are, we belong to Him. We've been bought with a price, therefore we are to glorify God in our body, which is His. Paul's very clear to make this about the body. Because the mind and the spirit are connected, but the law of sin and death is connected to the flesh. And the battle then is with our body. It's bringing our body into uh, alliance with what we have become. We've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life. So I'm going to go back to chapter 12, and I want to pick it up at verse 9. Because I think verse 9 is a critical text. In verse 9, Paul says, well, he's just finished talking about how we need the community. We're to do our gifts and our ministries at the level of our spiritual maturity and helping one another. You can't mature alone in this faith. You need the household and you need the congregation. And after he says that, then he says this in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil and cling to what is good. I think that that is Paul's 
starting statement for the rest of chapter 12 and for chapter 13, 14, and 15. He is telling us how to live by love. We walk by faith. We live by faith. We are justified by faith. That's in our spiritual belief of God and trusting Him. But we have to let... Somebody once said, uh, you don't seem very happy to somebody, and they said, I am happy. He says, well, you need to let your face know. Right? You guys know that old line? Let your face know because you don't look like it. Paul's basically saying, when you present yourself to God, your body needs to come along for the ride. The behavior of obedience is in the body, not in the mind. The faith, we walk by faith and not by sight, that's the spiritual eyes of faith that we function. But we are to walk in love. Faith that works by love, Paul calls it. So, in this verse he says, let love be without hypocrisy. I believe he's talking about this love of God and love of our neighbor and love of our fellow believer. What I call the three great commandments. There were two Jesus talked about. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Judaism has struggled always with does love your neighbor mean love your fellow Jew, or does it mean love your fellow man? And uh, the discussion generally is, this covers both of those. Jesus makes it explicit when he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. We love God with all ourself, give him ourself. We love our neighbor as ourself, but we love one another as Christ loved us. That's a self-sacrificing love. So I believe that Paul then uses that to address the list that we looked at last week. I'm just going to read them. I'm going to try to not comment on them because I did that last week and I've got to get on to chapter 13. But I want you to see 13 is, is coming off of this. So in verse 10 he says, So be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Here Paul uses the idea of phileo love. We're supposed to be affectionate towards one another. That means you've got to know each other. You can't be affectionate towards someone you don't know. You can do agapeo love to anybody, including an enemy. We'll get to that. But you really do phileo love to those who you know and care about. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in our spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. I really believe that prayer is a much more important aspect of our spiritual life than many of us realize. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Now those sound very much like the one another's because he's coming out of this concept of community. But then he expands beyond that. I talked about that last week where he's now talking about even those who are outside the faith. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now, back to the community again. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, Paul says. Then he does this 
really tough text. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as depends on you, be at peace with all men. That includes the stranger and even the enemy. Never make room, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's where we ended. Paul's talking about us living a very different kind of life that is not self-centered and is not even self-protective in some sense, that we pray and bless those who curse us and those who mistreat us and those who despise us. So where did Paul get this? Is this some new, fangled, Pauline doctrine that he's given? No. Uh, Paul got this from the Lord. So I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. I've often said that a lot of Christians should call themselves Paulines because they know Paul better than they know the words of Christ. Uh, We spend more time in the epistles than in the gospels. That's not a good idea. Uh, And we spend more time in the New Testament than in the Older Testament. That's not a good idea. We need all, God gave us all 66 books for a purpose. So in chapter 5, verse 38, Paul says, Don't take vengeance. You have heard it said, it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and takes your shirt, that means they won their case, let him have your coat also. If you're forced to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn from him who wants to borrow from you. Jesus is teaching this. Where did Jesus get it? Well, it's a new thing since Moses. No, that's not true either. The Bible is very clear about most of these things you will find in the commandments. And I'll show you a little bit of that in a minute. So, Jesus is also saying, don't take vengeance. Do good. He has told them to bless and not curse. Um, So, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount, he's telling us not to take revenge and to love our enemies. So here he goes now in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God does good even to evil people. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same. And maybe even journalists. 
happens in Chim, Chimshad, but what the heck, right? If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than other people? The Gentiles act this way. Jesus is aware what he's telling the Jews, this Sermon on the Mount, that some of the Gentiles, they take care of their own. They're, they're friends with, with people who, they like people who like them. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He means complete. You're to be consistent in this love. So he says, go the extra mile. As much as depends on us, live at peace with all men. You're going to live more at peace with all men if you reconcile with them, if you make restitution, if you go a little extra in that. They will then tend to, hey, you're, you're pretty much okay. And that's the idea. We're to live in this world in kingdom ways. So with that in mind now, we're going to enter into chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person, even the Americans, (laughs) is to be subject to the governing authorities. Because there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Whoever therefore resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Because rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you not to want, do you Want to not have fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For that authority is the minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is the minister of God, an avenger. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. In part, he's put government in that place. Who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but because of conscience sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render then, to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, Honor to whom honor is due. So Paul's now going to tell us how to live in the context of the government. Now, really important to understand that the government that Paul is talking about is Rome. This is a very, very vindictive government. It is a tough Government on its enemies, on those who cause a problem. Rome basically had two cardinal rules, and that was pay your taxes and don't cause trouble. If you cause trouble, we'll squash you, and if you don't pay your taxes, we'll squash you. That was what they wanted. Paul says, go along with them. He's also telling us how to do it in the same way that Jesus told us, as much as depends on you, you go with this. Because generally, government's purpose is to reward those who are doing good and to punish those who are not doing good. 
Paul's not talking about a government telling you to do evil. That's not in this text. I'll talk about that at another time. But generally, this is his get-along policy in that sense. Paul's talking in general terms here about what is the purpose of government. To reward those who do good, punish those who do wrong, so that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives. We're to, we're to pray for our leaders that we can lead quiet and peaceful lives. Not pray that they will turn this into a Christian nation, but that we can live quiet and peaceable lives as we go about living kingdom principles in the context of this culture. And he warns us that they don't bear the sword in vain. And so Paul basically says, you have two very good reasons for submitting yourself to the authorities. One, they don't bear the sword in vain. They can throw you in jail and they can tax you and they can do stuff and whether it's right or wrong, they can do it. And that's why you want to be careful. Solomon, in his wisdom, said, you know, uh, uh, don't, don't anger the king. It's not a good idea, right? You don't want to do that. Now, the second one, and I think the more important one, is that we are to do it for conscience sake. Conscience sake is related to our relationship to God. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. We're not just doing it because we're afraid they'll get us, but we're doing it because it's the right thing before God to do. He gives us those two reasons. So we are to pay taxes... So honor the dignitaries. This is somewhat problematic for you and I. Because we are allegedly a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. In other words, we don't actually have kings and rulers. We have elected officials. Technically, they're supposed to work for us, the American people, not we for them. That creates a different kind of mindset and a struggle with how do we obey this. When are they functioning in their legitimate authority and when are they not? And that, I, get, I said, is a separate issue and I think unique to us as Americans. But I worry always about, you. we've talked about this in the past, I worry about us becoming Americans first and Christians second. I want to keep it here where Paul's talking about we are believers in the world, but not of the world. Even though we are the government in some sense in America, which is a very unusual thing in, in human history. Now, lest you think this is just Paul, I want to show you that this is also covered by Peter. In First Peter chapter 2, Verse 13 to 17, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. This is that conscience idea. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what's right. So you see what's going on here? We have a theology of government. Our theology of government is government is supposed to encourage good and repress evil. That's, that's the purpose of government. Now, governments do a lot of other things. 
We can talk about that another time, but this is the theology of government in the Scriptures. He says, first, this is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So act as free, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as servants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And then he's going to go into servants and wives who are struggling to be uh, in these institutions and to subject themselves and find out that the person in charge is not being nice. And basically... The answer is, as much as depends on you, stay in your role. There will be a time when you can't. But that's the general rule that we are given. So, there's a time and a place to resist evil government, but that's not the subject of either Peter or Paul in this text, so we'll have to go to some of the other prophets for that at a later time. So back to Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Paul says you are to render, in verse 7, you are to render to everyone what's due them, whether that's taxes or honor or respect or whatever it is, and that's why even if there is a president I'm not crazy about, and there have been several. If they walked into the room, I would be respectful and call them Mr. President. I don't like it when people call presidents names. I think it violates this part of the scripture. I understand the temptation to do it. Okay. Do I believe that some presidents have been dipsticks? Yes, I do. But I you don't do that in a public setting, particularly when they're there, right? So Paul, uh, Paul says, now, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You see the overlap between the second commandment and the new commandment of Jesus? There's an overlap. You need to understand that these are the loving God also overlaps because there's an issue of how can you love God if you don't love your neighbor whom you have seen, right? So the or your brother whom you have seen. There's an overlap between those two. So when you hear love your neighbor, we should broaden that to include the loving one another. There's a subtle difference, maybe not so subtle difference in how we love them but we owe them love nonetheless. So he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves has fulfilled the law. This is fascinating. Paul said, We don't get rid of the law, we establish the law. We're not sinning that grace may abound. The law is good, the law is holy. We're going to follow the Spirit, and when we do the things that the Spirit is leading and teaching, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, and there's no law against them. Right? So, he's going to explain that. Verse 9. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, 
It's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This has been standard Judaism for a very long time. The idea that the two great commandments of loving God and our neighbor is what ultimately fulfills all of the commandments. They are all commandments of love in that sense. So, Paul says, and he's using the word agapeo here, agape love. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, he's repeated it. He's making it very clear to us. You cannot be a believer and walk in hatred of other people. You cannot be a believer and treat other people with disdain. Because our commandment is to love God, love our neighbor, and love one another. Faith establishes our salvation. And our gratitude for that has us acting out in love. Now Paul's going to finish this text with a... Well, he's not really finishing because he's going to move on to another example. We'll talk about that next time. But Paul wants to use an analogy. He uses it in several texts. Uh, I'm not going to go to those. Some of you will know what they are. If you don't, you can ask me afterwards. Paul says, you're to do this, this walking in love, this living in love, this trusting in God by faith and walking in love in our words and deeds. We need to do that because we need to know the time. Paul says we're to redeem the time for the days are evil. He says, it is already the hour for you to waken up from sleep. This is kind of Paul's version of being woke. (laughs) It's not about fixing this world. It's about anticipating the world to come. says, for now... Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Paul's calling us back to those first 11 chapters where God is unfolding His salvation of the Gentiles, His salvation of 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 Israel, and all Israel will be saved. That will be resurrection from the dead. We will be glorified. We will be adults. Sons and daughters of God. All of that's coming in the resurrection. And that is closer now, Paul says, than when we first believed. Now, he's writing just a few years after they first believed. But we belong to a long line of people who have been believing this for a very, very, very long time. If it was nearer then, it's really near now. right? In other words, our focus is not on this world. Our focus is not on fixing this world. We do what we can to repair it. We do what we can to, as much as depends on us, to be at peace with all people. But our focus is on the kingdom to come. Our focus is on the dawning of the uh, kingdom that that will come. So he says this, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. We could clearly go to other passages where Paul talks about the armor of God and all of that in context. Don't have time for that. 
But what he says then is, let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, and not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. This is Paul's arguing, you know human nature. All of this stuff usually happens at night. In hidden places, in darkness places. We're not of the night, we're of the day. And therefore we should be acting and thinking and functioning in that way. And so again, he comes back to this statement that he's made in Ephesians and in Colossians and in Philippians and in Romans about taking off the old man, not, not allowing that to guide our life, but letting the new creation guide our life. So he says it in verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and having done that, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. All of this comes from his present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, so that you may demonstrate what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Loving God, loving our neighbor, and loving one another. I believe that the church has lost sight of the idea of being dead to sin and alive to God because they've created a grace that does not turn somebody from their old ways. It's a grace that allows them to continue in the path they're in. And I think that's a false gospel. I do not believe in work salvation. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. If we tripled or quadrupled our love and goodness towards each other and everyone else, we would still not be in danger of earning our salvation. That gap is so great that we could never reach it. But we say to God, I believe you, and therefore I will speak, and I will act in accordance with your word to the best of my ability. And that struggle demonstrates that we are children of God. We need to shake ourselves, I think, in the American church and wake up to this delusion. And we need to be careful that we instill that into our children so they, do, they don't believe in a cheap grace that is just say the words, now I'm covered, I got my insurance for eternity. Uh, I really am starting eternity now with God. Now where is Paul going to go? I'm at the end. Paul's now going to take two chapters and talk about something that is, I think, practical. We're all gifted differently. We're all at different levels of maturity. We're all at different levels of doctrinal understanding. What do we do? Do we separate ourselves into the elites? No, we're supposed to associate with the lowly. So Paul's going to talk about those who are weak in the faith. Now, in, in America, you, don't, you can throw a rock and hit somebody who's weak in the faith in any direction. Paul's going to talk about those who are maturing and those who are not quite there yet and how we're to treat them. I'll just give you the first verse so that you have that context. I want you to accept the one who is weak in faith. 
but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. We live in a church world that is shot through with apologetics. I want to make sure you believe the right thing. Instead of, I want you to trust God and do the right thing. Which is what Paul's been talking about. So we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.